Let's open God's Word. The Gospel according to Matthew. Matthew chapter 1. This is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, Judah the father of Perez and Sirah, whose mother was Tamar, Perez the father of Hezron, Hezron the father of Ram, Ram the father of Amilabab, Amilabab the father of Nashon, Nashon the father of Salmon, Salmon the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of King David. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Solomon, the father of Rehoboam, Rehoboam, the father of Abijah, Abijah, the father of Asa, Asa, the father of Jehoshaphat, Jehoshaphat, the father of Jehoram, Jehoram, the father of Uzziah, Uzziah, the father of Jotham, Jotham, the father of Ahaz, Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah, Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh, Manasseh, the father of Amon, Amon, the father of Josiah, and Josiah, the father of Jeconiah, and his brothers at the time of the exile to Babylon. After the exile to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Sheatio, Sheatio the father of Sharubabel, Sharubabel the father of Abadhud, Abadhud the father of Eliakim, Eliakim the father of Asor, Asor the father of Sadok, Sadok the father of Achim, Achim the father of Elihud, Elihud the father of Eliezer, Eliezer the father of Mephan, Mephan, the father of Jacob, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, and Mary was the mother of Jesus, who is called the Messiah. Thus, there were 14 generations in all from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile to Babylon, and 14 from the exile to the Messiah. This is the word of God. Thanks, Jiva. What a stimulating passage, eh? <laughs> we finished Ecclesiastes last week, which was uh, a journey, and now we're into a genealogy. Just gets better and better, doesn't it? The only thing better than looking at this genealogy in uh, Matthew chapter 1 would be looking at book of chronicles maybe the first nine chapters if you've never read that that's nine chapters of a genealogy let me commend that to you to read as well it's like reading a telephone book which i haven't done but i have started to read a dictionary once on a wet afternoon i read all of the letters m all the words that began with the word letter m in the oxford english dictionary I was compiling a list in another church for a mission statement, so I read every single word. I didn't read all the definitions. And so looking at this genealogy brings back memories like that. It's an important passage and it's there for a reason. It's not just a list of names, but it's a constructed list that Matthew has deliberately put together. And it's a bit different in our culture where we don't 
value it too much, but if you were buying a dog, you'd want to know the pedigree, wouldn't you? Well, that's a little bit like what Matthew's doing here. It's establishing the, the, the royalty, the right for Jesus to be the king of Israel. That's what he's doing. So we're going to pray, and then we're going to work our way through this. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, every part of your word is important, and we ask this morning that you would help us to understand this first part of Matthew's gospel, that you would uh, instruct us, enlighten us, and that through this passage, through your truth, we might hear your voice speaking about you and about your purposes. Lord, help us to learn this morning and to be blessed by our attendance. We ask and pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Just a reminder that, particularly for folks at home, that at the end of this uh, service we're going to be having communion together, so you might want to make sure you've got your elements ready for that. Um, we'll do the message, the sermon, and then we'll sing our closing song, and then we'll do communion and closing prayer, so you've got a little time to get ready for that. Um, I haven't got the clicker, Gary. I don't know what I've done with it. Could you operate that, please? So, I've entitled this message, if you go to the next slide, Gary, it'll say, God works with bent sticks and broken pots. We're all a little bit bent, we're all broken, and God works with us and through us, and this list of people particularly reminds us of that truth. Next. All the way through the Gospel of Matthew, the question is being asked, who is this man? Who is Jesus? It's asked about nine times, maybe ten times, of who is he? It's asked after he performs miracles, it's asked after he does um, some teaching, it's after he rides into the Jerusalem on a donkey. Who is this man? Is he the son of David? And that's certainly the question that Matthew is wanting us to grab a hold of at the beginning of this Advent season as we head towards Christmas. Matthew chapter 1 falls into these two parts. The first part is this human heredity, this genealogy. The second part, verses 18 to the end, which we'll look at next week, is his divine heredity, the human side and the divine side. That Jesus is a person who came into our world in order to save us. Next slide, please, Gary. Many people jump over these verses, and that's understandable, I guess. Many people find it boring, they just want to move on, it's incomprehensible. Um, it's a string of names and not much spiritual food. If we do that, we're making a mistake. When I went to high school back in 1968, I think it was, uh, at the beginning of the year we received a gift from the Gideons. <clears throat> I'm sure you had the same experience, we got a little red New Testament. And I had not raised in a Christian family, hadn't attended church or any of those sorts of things except to be confirmed in the Anglican church when I was about five or six or something. And Outside of that, <clears throat> very little spiritual input, apart from, I guess, the teacher reading scripture lessons in half an hour a week and so on. So when I received this little New Testament, I didn't know what it was, but I was moved by it. I liked it. And for me, it was like a good luck charm. I kept it in my bag and I took it to schools, particularly uh, on Fridays. On Fridays, we had exams. And so before my science exam, I would go out to where the bags were kept in the little alcove, <clears throat> I would look in my bag and I would touch, not rub, but touch the little New Testament because that would bring me luck. Then I would go back in and do the exam. And I did very well. I got good marks for three weeks. <laughs> because on the fourth week, 
as I went out to the bag, some other kids went out there with me and they saw me grabbing the New Testament. They said, you haven't still got that, have you? And I was embarrassed, so I put it back. And I didn't do well in that exam. So I had moved on. In those three weeks or so, every night before I went to sleep, I started to read the New Testament, Matthew chapter 1. When I got to the next night, I couldn't remember what I had read the night before. Can you? Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac was the father of Jacob, Jacob was the father of Judah and his brothers. That's what I was reading for three weeks. I would read that, then I would pray the Lord's Prayer, and then I would go to sleep. That was the depth of my spiritual upbringing. So this passage I have read lots of times. Um, And of course, it's only as you become a believer and you look at this very carefully that you come to appreciate there's nothing useless in all the Word of God. If it's there, it's there for a reason, it's there for a purpose. We may not understand it, of why it's there, but in time, either somebody uh, or somebody else will point out to us what its truth is, what meaning it contains. J.C. Ryle wrote, Let no one think that these verses are useless. Nothing is useless in all of the Bible. Every word is inspired. Those parts which seem at first sight unprofitable... um, are all there for some good purpose. Look again at the 17 verses and see some useful instructions and lessons, Ryle writes. Matthew certainly has constructed this genealogy. He's being selective. He's not being inaccurate, but he is being selective and he's structured it according to three fourteens. And I'll come back to that in a moment. Um, Why are they there? Because genealogies, particularly in that world, in the Jewish world, are very, very important. And their purpose is to establish, as I said, Jesus is certainly part of history. It establishes his royalty, but it also illustrates God's grace. That's the message for us this morning. In the Jewish world, genealogies were important when you were buying land. If you were going to be a priest, you had to be able to show your descent from Levi, from Aaron. Um, If you wanted access to the temple, you had to have genealogical proof that you were allowed to enter there. The Roman census we know from the Christmas story is based upon these genealogies. That's why Mary, uh, why Joseph takes Mary and they return to Bethlehem, the place of their origin, um, their tribal ancestry. So the line of descent was all important to the Jewish people. All of life was affected by it. And so it's not unusual in that world for Matthew to begin his gospel with the genealogy of the Lord Jesus because he wants to show very clearly to his Jewish audience, that's his primary audience, of who Jesus is and who his ancestry was. In other parts of the world, even today, the genealogy impacts people with the truth of the gospel. I had a missionary friend who was in New Guinea. I read during the week about another missionary who was in the Philippines and this story is recounted around the world that People, you're teaching them the story about who Jesus is and his death and his resurrection. It's when they discover he's got a genealogy that the lights go on for them. The tribe in New Guinea, you don't mean to tell me that he was real, that he belonged in history, but you can trace his ancestry. Yep. And the light goes on for them, that Jesus is part of human history. So they are significant. The other interesting thing before we move on, if you move to the next one, I think it is Gary. Something significant happened in AD 70. The Romans had 
the Jewish people were rebelling a little bit against Rome and so Rome massed forces and over three or four years they eventually invaded Jerusalem. In AD 70 they destroyed it, they burnt the temple to the ground. In AD 70 therefore all genealogical records were destroyed. They no longer exist. What does that mean? That means that Jesus Christ is the last verifiable claimant to the throne of David. The genealogy of Matthew chapter 1 establishes that. Nobody else can establish that lineage anymore outside of the New Testament, outside the Scriptures. So let's move on. I just thought that was an interesting point worth sharing. Um, I want to come back to the structure of it in a moment, but simply to say that Matthew's got it in three sections. And he says there are 14 names, depending on how you count it. In the third section, there's in fact only 13 because he repeats the name of Jeconiah in verse 11 and in verse 12. But he starts with two men, he goes through three eras, and he has five women, if you're counting Mary at the end. Otherwise, it's four women in the earlier part of the genealogy. That's basically his structure, and he's got a message that he wants us to notice, which I will highlight towards the end. The Lord Jesus is a descendant of David. He is the son of David. The son of David is a phrase that Matthew uses, something like, as I said, nine times, ten times, something like that. And 16 times in the Gospel of Matthew, he'll say, this happened so in order for this scripture to be fulfilled. Matthew was trying very strongly to link the Old Testament with Jesus, with the New Testament story. He is the son of David. Son of David is not just a genealogical and ancestral statement. It's the title of the king, the son of David. Could this be the son of David? Son of David, have mercy on me. Who is this man riding a donkey into Jerusalem? He's the son of David. He is, the phrase means, he is the king that was promised through David. God promised David in 2 Samuel chapter 7 that he would have a son who would sit on the throne in Jerusalem and he would reign forever. The son of David was the forever king and the Jewish people were waiting in expectation for this Messiah, this king to come and Matthew begins by telling us he is the son of David. There's something else you'll tell us about David in just a moment but he begins by reminding us that he is the son of David. Joseph likewise is the son of David but he's never called that because he's not the king. We'll come back. Son of David, son of Abraham. God promised Abraham that through his seed, his name would be a blessing to all nations. Through David, a forever king. Through Abraham, a blessing to all nations. This is all fulfilled in the person of the Lord Jesus. Son of David, royal descent. Son of Abraham, racial descent. That's how Matthew wants to begin, right off the bat. And then from verses 2 all the way down to about 16, 17, he gives this list of names in this structure. Before we work our way through that, and I'm not going name by name, though you could, we all have skeletons in our family closet, don't we? Got some skeletons in your family history? I may not know what yours are, but I don't know any family that doesn't. We all have some member of the family that we're uncomfortable about or we all have somebody in our history who got up to mischief or who did something wrong. It's, every family is impacted by it. What's amazing about the Bible is it opens the door on the closet of all the family, of all the heroes and the great people of faith on the key players. Even in the Messiah's line, 
and he was without sin. It includes idolaters and liars, there is incest and prostitution, there is adultery, there's even a king by the name of Manasseh who was guilty of burning, offering his children in the flames to a pagan idol. It's a tainted list. What's the point of that? Well, it reminds us that the Messiah came into our world through sinners, for sinners. It's obviously not a fabricated list because who would invent this? There are kings and there are nobodies. There are men and what is very unusual, and there are women. Five women are named. It almost never happens that a woman would be included in a genealogical table. You may add a very famous woman or a woman of great dignity and great fame that may add to your history, but these five women don't do that, with the exception perhaps of both Ruth and Mary. The other three are are bad women, they're notorious, and they're included because of Matthew's point of what he wants us to get. There are Jews and Gentiles. Many of these women were not Jewish. There, is mor- there are moral people like Ruth. Not that we know a lot about her, but we know a little. And there are certainly immoral. The Lord Jesus, when he was here, deliberately associated himself with tax collectors and with sinners, with notorious scoundrels. And Matthew, the author of this very gospel, himself was one of those. Here is the point, I think, that we ought to learn from this. As you observe the genealogical table of the Lord Jesus, grace does not run in family lines. Grace is not genetic. It's not passed on to the next generation automatically. You have godly king, godly king, wicked king. Wicked king, wicked king, godly king. It's not automatic. Um, That ought to, in some ways, encourage us but it also ought to stimulate us that we need to be praying for our children. We certainly need to live before them and uh, be examples and do all that we can to help them come to faith. But at the end of the day, we can't make them. We can teach and train them in the way they ought to go, but at the end of the day, it's up to them and they have to choose. So we're to try to be a positive influence, but sometimes... The most godly parents can have the most rebellious child. Happens. And though some people may want to blame the parents or blame something else about the upbringing, at the end of the day, each person is responsible for their own choices that they make. We learn that. I learn that from these verses in Matthew chapter 1. I want you to notice a couple of verses in particular, two verses to note. Well, two sections. In verse 16, Matthew changes the formula. And it's quite deliberate, of course, and it's theologically very significant. Up until now, he's gone, name of the father is the father of name of the son. Name of the son, name of is the father of this son, and so on. In verse 16, he comes to, he says, Joseph, the, the husband of Mary, by whom was born Jesus. Matthew is being very precise with his language and he is saying Joseph was married to Mary but Jesus is not his son, Jesus is the son of Mary. That's the only way that his language could be understood. 
Um, and that, of course, is a very literal fulfilment of Genesis 3.15, the promise of God to Adam and Eve in the garden, actually to Satan in the garden with Adam and Eve listening, that God would, uh, there would be a battle between the seed of the woman and the seed of uh, Satan, and that the seed of the woman would crush the head of the seed of the serpent. The seed of the woman is Jesus. And one other thing to note, a verse is in verses 11 and 12, this character called Jeconiah. Josiah, good king, was the father of Jeconiah, bad king, and his brothers at the time of the exile to Babylon. And after the Babylonian exile, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel. Why is he important? Well, if you go back to the book of Jeremiah, chapter 22 and chapter 36, Jeconiah, because of his disobedience, was cursed or judged by God. And the judgment was that no son of his would sit on the throne of David. Jeconiah and his offspring would never rule. And yet here he is in the genealogical table. So Joseph is descended through Jeconiah. If Jesus had descended through Joseph, which he didn't, of course then Jesus could never sit on the throne because of the curse of the judgment on that ancestor, Jeconiah. I'll say it another way. Here is this line of kings that God is bringing, eventually will bring his son into the world, and it gets to this point, hundreds of years before Jesus, and God says, no more through this line. And then when you go to the Gospel of Luke, you find out that this line is coming down, and here it splits, and it's through another brother, another son of his ancestor, where Mary comes. And the royal throne then belongs to Jesus. Just a minor point, but I think it's an interesting point. Next, these verses teach us that Christianity is certainly founded in history. It's not a myth, it's not a legend, it's not make-believe. This is verifiable historical stuff. Jesus is a real person who descended from the line of David. He's the son of Abraham. As I said before, it's impacted other people, Papua New Guinea and the Philippines and so on, through that. This passage also implies and shows us that God is a God who keeps his word. That's both a warning, he keeps his judgments, but it's also a wonderful promise that what God has said is what he will do. The first coming of the Lord Jesus was the fulfilment of 2,000, took 2,000 years to fulfil the promise that God gave to Abraham. It took a thousand years to fulfill the promise that he gave to David, but God kept his word. He kept it. He did what he said he was going to do, and he will. What God has said to us is what he will do. It may be delayed, it may appear to be slow in coming, but it will happen. He does not, and he cannot lie or deceive. And what he speaks that he is going to do, he will do. And so the second coming of the Lord Jesus, which is promised, will come. And he will come to judge the earth and to reward his followers. The question for us is, are we ready for that day? He is coming. We need to turn from our sin and ourself and doing things our way and turn to him, ask him to forgive us and walk with him, trust him, rely on him day by day. Christianity is part of history and God is a God who keeps his word. I have time, I can teach you this, tell you this bit. 
There are 330 prophecies about the coming of Jesus, both first and second coming. 330. A mathematician by the name of Peter Stone did some calculation on what are the chances of eight, just eight, of those prophecies being fulfilled in the one person of Jesus. And he gave the number. It's one to the power of, it's 10 to the power of 17. 17 noughts after one chance in that. He said it's like this. <clears throat> and he's an American, so he, he takes uh, the state of Texas. So for us, that would be around about the size, I think, of New South Wales, roughly about the same, um, just in terms of geographical space. And if you took $1 coin and you covered the entire state of Texas with dollar coins, you would be 60 centimetres deep across the whole state. And you would take one of those gold coins and put an X on it and put it anywhere you like. You can hide it. You can bury it all the way down. You can put it anywhere in the state. Only one coin has the X on it. And then the chance of these eight prophecies being fulfilled in one person in Jesus is the same odds as a person who is blindfolded walking anywhere they like in the state of Texas. They get one chance. Doesn't matter how long it takes, but they get one chance to bend down and to pick one coin. And the chances of these eight prophecies being fulfilled in Jesus is the same as that, one per, that blindfolded person finding that one coin first time. Isn't that impressive? Hello. Merry Christmas. Um, and he goes on to give lots of other statistics, but that one certainly blew me away. God always keeps his word. Next. There are three eras that Matthew deliberately draws our attention to. He's actually structured it that way. He's, he's de deliberately de de um, omitted some names. If you look at what Kings and Chronicles, the genealogical tables, you can see he's jumped two or three kings here and he's jumped some more there and... So he's done it deliberately, verse 17. Thus there are 14 generations from Abraham to David, 14 generations from David to the exile, 14 generations from the exile to the Messiah. Why? What's the point of this? This is certainly an emphasis of Matthew chapter 1 that's worth spending some time on. And the bottom line is, we don't know. <laughs> I'll give you three options. And they're all, they could all be true. Um, but to point this out first, before I give you those three options, the history of the Jewish people falls into these three eras. I should go the other way for you, shouldn't I? And they can be perceived to be from the perspective of David. The first era from Abraham to King David is the rise of the kingdom of David, the origin and rise of the kingdom. From David then until the exile... It's the fall and decline of the kingdom of David. The rise of the kingdom after David, the fall and decline of the kingdom. Then from the exile until the Messiah, this could be seen as either the removal or the, um, the fading away of the kingdom of David. It's Structured this way, it's a, the perspective is King David. That's certainly the emphasis of Matthew's Gospel. And he's wanting to say that the kingdom of David is being in eclipse. It's about to disappear. And what happens right at the end? Jesus comes. The fulfilment of all the prophecies. 
Jesus is the rightful heir. Just at the very end, when everybody was losing hope, at just the right time, God sends his son into the world. I think that's close to what Matthew is trying to communicate to us. There are three options. Number one, the word David in Hebrew, each letter has a numerical value. David's number is, guess what? 14. So it's a hint. The D is four. The V is six. So it's four, six, four. There's no vowels. It's just the consonants. 14. Could be that. It could be, and this is um, a creative suggestion, that in the third set there are in fact not 14 but 13 names because Jeconiah is mentioned twice. If you don't count him in the third list, then it's 14, 14, 13. And if that's the way that it should be understood, then that could mean that just as things were getting really bad and like it was eclipsing and just about to disappear, God cut that short and sent Jesus. Could mean that. Like Jesus promises in Matthew 24, that if God didn't shorten those days, then even the elect might lose faith. If God didn't cut it short. This is the suggestion I think is also of value. It's a little bit mucking around with numbers and numerology, which I'm not comfortable with, but Matthew does appear to like patterns. Three lots of 14. What's half of 14? Sorry? Brilliant. How many sevens are there? Six. There are six lots of seven. Seven being the perfect number, the number of completion. There are six lots of seven. And then at the end of the sixth seventh, then there is the seventh seventh with Jesus. Follow? I'm saying this as clear as mud, I think. Matthew was structured in such a way as to say that through history, God was working his purposes out. Six days of creation and on the seventh day God rested, the Sabbath day. So through history, through six lots of seven, God was working his purposes out and then the perfect one came. He is the fulfilment, he is the culmination. God does need, doesn't need to do anything else. All that he was working towards, he has done and achieved in the person of Jesus. And that's certainly how Matthew ends his gospel, going to all the world and make disciples of all nations. Because God has brought his perfect saviour, the Lord Jesus, into the world. There are three options for you. You can think about it. Next. Two things to point out, that everybody on the list who lived a life, whether long or short, died. So will we. We will all die, young or older. And after death, judgment question where will you spend eternity that's the most important question that we can answer upstairs or downstairs air conditioned or in the sauna smoking non-smoking all the names listed in the genealogy are sinners every single one except Jesus of course all of us need God's forgiveness all of us need the saviour And interestingly, even Mary is on the list because Mary is a sinner. She was not perfect or without sin. So let me say this to you this morning. If you've fallen into sin, if you've strayed from the path, if you've 
wandered off or drifted spiritually, then the genealogy reminds us that God sent his perfect son into the world through sinners and for sinners, for people just like us. We need him. So turn back to him, experience his forgiveness, walk with him day by day. God can take the most unlikely people and work through them. He is the one who can sanctify us. Whatever sin entangles us, he can deal with it. If he did it through the genealogy with Jesus, he can do it with us. So who was this man? Well, Matthew answers the question for us. His name is Jesus. He'll save his people from their sins. His title is Christ because he's the anointed promised one, the one who was predicted. He's the son of David. He's the king for all time. He is the son of Abraham. He is the blessing to all nations. And in Matthew chapter 1, he is Emmanuel. He is God with us. Let me summarize this and then I'm going to pray. We've said this morning that Jesus is part of human history, that God keeps his word, that nothing in the word of God is there without a reason and a purpose, that grace doesn't run in families, that we need to respond personally and individually, that Jesus, through his genealogy, teaches us that he has a real kinship with sinners, that he came into the world to die for people just like you and me in order to change us, to befriend us, to adopt us into his forever family. And that God can overcome sin to achieve his purposes. He did through this list of characters. And he continues to do it today until his son returns. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we acknowledge that you are the sovereign God who works his purposes out in human history and through imperfect people. You're the God who works with bent sticks and broken pots. You brought Jesus into our world. You're the God who keeps his word. Lord, that comforts us, but it can also be a warning to us. Thank you, Lord, for your grace. And we do know that it doesn't run automatically in families, that we have a responsibility to teach and train the next generation. Help us to do so faithfully. But most of all, Lord, we remember and are grateful that through men and women, through good people and bad people, you work, that you can overcome all obstacles and that, Lord Jesus, you have a real kinship with fallen humanity and therefore with us. We are grateful for your grace. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.